It is 9.30, so I'm going to pray and get us started. You come on in. There's seats all along in here. And if you want to squeeze over, leave some seats on the end. That helps people who are still coming in. feel like I'm organizing my congregation on Sunday. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us this opportunity to think about skills together, think about uh, our, our skill of listening and asking questions and helping people by debunking assumptions and all the other things that we want to explore together. Help us in our time together. We pray it in your Son's name. Amen. All right, well, you are in the um, session where we're going to think about listening with a discerning ear and asking questions. Uh, if you... If you were able to grab, I don't know if there were any copies left, There's a, there was an outline, uh, and if not, you can grab it off online. Um, there's seats over inside, over here, if you want to join in. Um, the, you see at the top of that outline just the methodology. So this is just the, the overview of the methodology that Jeremy Pierre and I came up with. It's a, it's a simple four-part way to think about how you're interacting with people. First one is the listening with the discerning ear. So we're gonna, that's what we're going to cover today, just the first part of, um, of lis- listening to others, asking questions, understanding a person's context for their life and their troubles. The second is considering a person's heart responses. You know, we want to help people to ponder how their heart is responding to God, to themselves, to other people, and to their circumstances. Then speaking the truth in love, we have an opportunity to interact with their sin and suffering. And so we teach and we comfort and we warn, we encourage, we advise and we admonish people to appropriate responses, heart responses to their circumstances. And then that last one you see there, a call to commit to change. A pastor or counselor encourages the person to commit to some kind of change, which includes coming up with a plan and a commitment to implementing that plan. This is the doing part of, of the four-part process. That's, a, that's our methodology that comes out of the pastor and counseling. If you want to go into that more in depth, our book, in terms of how you work through something with people when they come into your, your office and you have to help them out. But what I'm going to focus on is on that first part, on the listening and asking questions. That's the, 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 the thing that we want to dive into in a little bit more detail. We talked about this little bit yesterday in terms of the overview, but I want to work through some of that same stuff with a, a bit more behind it. So the first part you see there, the skill of, ask, uh, skill of listening. What causes people to be poor listeners? Go ahead. Before you look down at your outline, <laughs> go ahead, take a guess. Oh, yeah, okay, more eager to talk than listen. Good, in the back. Disinterest in the person or what you're saying? Okay, so I'm not interested in what you have to say. <laughs> I don't really care what you're going to tell me. Yes? Outside distractions. Outside distractions. Hard to focus on the person in front of you. Yes? Notification. Say it again? Notification on your phone. Notification on your phone. Yeah, distractions like your phone. Put your phone away. <laughs> don't, don't let it distract you. Yes? Jump to conclusion. So you rush to say something. Yeah, good. All good, good, good suggestions. You see my list there. Impatience, which I define as inability to appreciate the present. Tiredness. You know, I have a hard time tracking if I'm exhausted. Now, you, you heard yesterday, I've got five kids. You know, when you've got especially little ones who get up in the middle of the night 
and then you, you know your sleep is minimal, and then you have to sit through sessions with someone. And you know, I have much more energy in that nine o'clock session because it's first thing in the morning. I've had my breakfast, but I feel bad for that person who's coming at four thirty. You know, they get the dregs of me at the end of the day, and it's really hard to stay with it. And you know, if somebody's talking at you for thirty to forty-five minutes, you know, by a minute like twelve to fifteen to thirty-five, I'm 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 struggling to keep with it. Then distractions around you, or maybe you're easily distractible in general. So my office is situated in, in the center of the staff offices, and we've we've designed it so that because I do a lot of counseling, that there's windows so you can see in and see me at all times for accountability. But the downfall is it's it's the main lobby right outside the secretary's desk is right there. So a lot of times the the pastoral staff. So we've got a a bunch of guys in their 30s and 40s, you know, at points they'll be like run into each other and have a conversation and somebody tells a joke and they start laughing really loud. You know, I've got somebody on my couch crying. (laughs) So I'm trying to focus on the person and yet the guys are hooping it up right outside my window. (laughs) And I'm trying to stay focused on like the really hard conversation I'm having in front of me. So are you distractible? I mean, you know, is, is, it, is it hard to stay focused on what you're, what you're doing there? Or, or maybe you're wrestling with distracting thoughts. You know, a killer is if I just had a really hard conversation with my wife, and then I go across the street to my office, get into a session with someone, and they're talking to me, and where's my heart? It's still back there in that really hard conversation with my wife. <laughs> you know, especially if it was difficult and painful for me. I, I, you know, I'm a human being. I'm an image bearer. I'm still wrestling with that. I'm trying at the same time to catch up with the person who's in front of me spilling their life out at me. <laughs> what a war that is. <laughs> you know, but that's real life. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to deal earnestly with the, the distractions that are there in real life <laughs> and yet stay focused on the person who's in front of me and having a hard time listening to them. Then zoning out. <laughs> Just a hard time staying focused. So, you know, I know, there, you know our, our congregation tends to be note-takers. Well, I told you we're type A, so they're neurotic about note-taking. Uh, if you don't give them an outline, they'll rebel. Uh, so uh, it, it, I take notes, though, and, and, you know, a lot of our members, they'll take it home, they'll go over the notes, they'll talk it over with family members, they'll use it in their meditation time. That's really godly. I'm just not that godly. <laughs> the, the, the main reason why I take notes is what? To pay attention. <laughs> that is the reason why I take notes. So I can stay focused during the sermon. Because if I don't take notes, by minute five, my mind is wandering. <laughs> uh, and I want to be engaged. I want to take in the Word. I'm really hungry for it. So note-taking is a simple act of helping me stay focused. Uh, that, that's what it does for me uh, in, in, in dealing with it. And then in interrupting. Uh, not being patient enough to hear someone out. Um, so, you know, if, 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 a good thing to learn about is just different communication styles. Uh, what, what is your communication style? And there, there's a communication style which is more reserved. You know, you wait on people. You let them, let, let them talk things out because that's your disposition. Or there's a communication style that's a bit more aggressive. You tend to 
jump in on things. You talk things out. You like get, you, you're eager to say something. Well, I'm the latter. <laughs> I, I've had to work at letting people talk things out and not speaking in too quickly. It, it, it takes a lot of self-discipline. I had to grow in that. Um, and I still, I still get frustrated because I'm ready to say something. <laughs> you know, 10 minutes into the session, I, I've already got thoughts. But I, it's not going to help them if I keep jumping in. I need to give them the space to talk it out. Um, so I need to not interrupt them. Need to be humble enough to ask also for a person to repeat himself if you missed what they said. And, you know, that's an act of humility. You can't do that nine times in a session. <laughs> that communicates, well, I'm not bothering listening to you. But, you know, if you miss something, you need to be able to say, sorry, I zoned out. I apologize for that. Can you just repeat what you just said? Um, but, but that requires humility out of you. Now, we talked about this yesterday. I'm just going to repeat it for the sake of the recording, but also to remind us of what we're talking about in terms of the biblical picture of a poor listener is the proverbial fool. Proverbs has lots on this, but this is a sampling for you. Proverbs 18.2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only expresses his opinion. Proverbs 18.13, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Proverbs 29.20, do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. So the biblical picture of the fool is one who doesn't listen and understand, but speaks too quickly. He is impulsive. He answers before he hears. He doesn't take the time to hear and then speak. And then in 18.2, the fool finds no pleasure, finds pleasure only in saying what he or she wants to say. 18.13, because of the impulsive speech that lacks understanding, he's deemed foolish or shameful, as one commentator said, stupid and a disgrace. Then we consider James, the exact opposite. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every be person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. James 1.19 James' encouragement, being the exact opposite of fool, helps us to know that we must be quick to hear and slow to speak. So then that leads us to what's a good listener? Now, don't look down on your page again. <laughs> Go ahead, call it out. What do you think is a good listener? Patient, of course. Patience. What else? Reflecting back what they're saying. Yeah. Okay. So if you can reflect back, summarize what they're saying, it shows to them that you heard them. It's an excellent skill in communicating with others. Yes. Yeah, so if you're interacting with it, feedback shows that you were listening to what they were saying. Good, yes. Eye contact. Eye contact, yes, so looking at them. Good. Reading their body language and the nonverbals. Yeah, so looking for the nonverbals, which gives you a lot more context for, for the words that are being said. Yeah, good, excellent, excellent. So you see my list there, too. Eye contact and squarely facing the person. And you know what I mean like that? You know, as I, if I'm sitting up, I'm... I'm I'm not like crunched over, I'm not hunched back, I'm not leaning back. You know, I'm squarely facing the person as I'm talking to them. And I'm looking at them. You know, I'm, I'm looking at them as we're engaging one another. Now, that can be a little too intense. I mean, I can make eye contact for a while, and you see people will do the social things, like their eyes will switch just for a little bit. You know, and that's decreasing the intensity as they do that in terms of eye contact. And, you know, if it feels too intense, you can shift 
the eye movements also to help them, um, help them with that. But you want to pay attention to breaks in eye contact because sometimes it reveals different things. You know, for example, a lack of interest. <laughs> you know, I have, I have bookshelves all around my office, and sometimes I'm sitting there with a couple helping them in their marriage, and I might be speaking to the husband or the wife, and it drives me nuts if then you see the spouse. I'm, I'm here trying to rescue your marriage, and your eyes are like wandering around the office, staring at the bookshelf, checking out the titles. I'm like, you, you, you need to be paying attention to what I'm doing here. <laughs> You're communicating a lack of interest in this moment. <laughs> or, you know, a, a, a person looks down because they're sh- ashamed or embarrassed. I can't tell you the number of times I've spoken with adulterers. And they can't make eye contact with me. Especially in that first meeting when it all comes out. When, when they've been caught and it's being revealed. I mean, the, the, the last time I did this uh, with, with a couple, and the husband had caught his wife in adultery, uh, had, had, had found things online that gave evidence to the fact that she was committing adultery, confronted her, she confessed, and they came in the next morning to see me. And in the middle of that meeting, I, she, she hadn't looked at me the whole time. And I said, look up at me because I wanted to talk to her about God's forgiveness uh, for her sin. And she shook her head and said, I can't. I I can't bear to look at you. I'm just too ashamed. So that lack of eye contact communicated a lot in terms of the state of her soul. But you need to also recognize the cultural differences in eye contact. And some cultures... Direct eye contact is a sign of disrespect. (laughs) So you just have to be sensitive to some of the cultural differences. You know, as Americans, we can just be fairly intense (laughs) when it comes to some of these body language stuff, including eye contact. So if you're doing this overseas, you just got to rearrange some some of your thoughts in terms of how to handle this. Focus, not distracted, stay engaged, which is hard work, and obviously the, the big, big, big distraction. Just get your phones out of the way. (laughs) I mean, just do not have them in your possession if you're trying to have a hard conversation. And, you know, if you do have that awkward moment where it goes off, well, don't don't go like, whoa, excuse me for a second. Um, Just click it off and put it aside without even having to look at it. So you can stay focused on the moment and what's, what's going on. And then patience. Don't interrupt. Give the person a chance to finish off what they're saying at the moment. Over, over the course of a conversation, give them a chance to work through the conversation without you speaking in too soon. You know, pastors often sit in with me to just observe counseling. Uh, a lot of our staff do that as a part of our training, especially we have a junior tier of staff in terms of pastors coming up the, uh, through our kind of... Uh, we have a um, kind of a training hospital system where guys come in at a lower level and move up the way. So a lot of them sit in, do co-counseling um, with us. And I've, I've had different guys will say, I wouldn't have waited as long as you did. They'll often say, I would have spoken a lot sooner. And then attentive to body language. You know, open, relaxed posture rather than closed posture is generally what you're looking for. 
Well, you know, we talked about yesterday the practical application question you see there on their handout. Did you get a number in your mind <laughs> when I said, you know, what, 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 how good of a listener are you? That's why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> good answer. <laughs> good answer. Yeah, I mean, d- d- take, take that number, you know, the scale of 1 to 10, you remember that? Uh, the, the worst listener on the planet, number one. And then, not just on the planet, number 10, best listener in the universe. <laughs> Where are you on that? If you didn't go back, see the second point there, if you didn't go back and ask someone for feedback, then do that after the conference. And especially if you're married. <laughs> go ask your spouse and then email me later how the conversation went. <laughs> I may need to give you counseling after you have that conversation. <laughs> But this, this is what it means to learn how to be a better listener. You're humble in asking for feedback. You're humble in asking for help. You know, I'm, I'm at a stage where my older teenagers give me lots of feedback on things. Um, and it's, it's humbling because not only your spouse now, but your kids are old enough that they call you out on things. Um, and you, you have to be open and, and be humble enough and model it. I mean, how else is your family going to grow in humility if you're not willing to lead in that way? You just got to demonstrate your willingness to take that kind of feedback. Next section, biblical basis for understanding and knowing. What is our biblical basis for understanding and, and getting to know someone? You see the scripture there, again, from Proverbs. How much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver, Proverbs sixteen sixteen. Those with insight into a matter find prosperity. Blessed are those who trust Yahweh, Proverbs 16, 20. Insight is the fountain of life for him who has it, but discipline of fools is folly, Proverbs 16, 22. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion, Proverbs 18, 2. And then whoever gets sense loves his own soul. He who keeps understanding will discover good, Proverbs 19.8. From these Proverbs, you see that understanding and insight is something that is more valuable than gold. 16.16 is something that brings prosperity. 16.20 is a fountain of life. 16.22 and allows a person to discover good. 19.8. Now, Proverbs 25 uh, You see there, the purpose of a man's heart is like deep water. A man of understanding will draw it out. So what are we talking about here? Well, a man of understanding draws out the purposes. Much like you put a bucket in a deep well and lower it to the bottom of the well and draw out what's in the bottom of the well, so also we pursue people's hearts. We go after the deep things of the heart, the mysterious purposes of the heart, in order to understand and draw out the more profound things in a person's life. And going after the heart is our depth variable. If we come to understand what is their goals, their motivations, what they love, what they cherish, what they idolize, what is most meaningful for them, you're getting more down to the core of what really motivates them and changes their life. And so we got to dig for that. we got to dig for that and not, not be satisfied with the surface-level questions that often characterize much of our conversations. And so if, if you don't know how to do that, and you're thinking, I don't even, I don't even get what you're talking about. Like, what, what, what does that look like? Well, if you've never read 
David Paulson, late David Paulson's excellent article called X-Ray Questions. It's just an article that gives you a sampling of what these questions are like. And the best part about it is he, he tags Scripture to every one of the questions to give you a sense of how Scripture gives you concepts of this. But you just read through that, and it gives you a really good feel of what these kind of heart-oriented, more in-depth, heart-revealing, heart-exposing questions are like. And then you learn to practice them by asking them. You just learn to do it by getting a feel for it. You might think, well, I don't even know how to ask those questions. Well, grab a couple of them that he has on there and start using them in, in, in conversations. And just be ready, because a couple of people... It will open up the conversation. (laughs) It'll reveal some things. uh, And and once you see that and you taste the fruit of that, you're not going to be satisfied with less than that. Because when you taste the fruit of kind of the deeper things in a person's life, and you begin to see and get into that kind of thing, you're like, okay, give me more. (laughs) Just give me more of this. So you start learning to practice asking those kinds of questions. And it's a skill. You learn how to do it by exercising the skill. So if, it's, if it needs to be like training wheels, where you take a couple of David's questions and you try them out, well, great. But it's in the action of beginning to do that, you can learn how to exercise those questions. And then you start being creative and use common sense and ask your own questions and ask specific questions for certain contexts. And you learn. You learn how to do this. I mean, I, I, I was... I was naturally inclined to ask people questions. I mean, that's just kind of my personality and disposition long before I got into counseling, which is what caused me to end up in counseling, uh, more in terms of my pastoral ministry. Um, But I had to grow at this. Uh, My questions were pretty basic at the beginning, um, and it was that article kind of blew things open for me. (laughs) That article kind of gave me a flavor of it and just the range of the ways you can ask it. Because I'm, I'm pretty simple. Like, you know, I eat oatmeal every morning. <laughs> Just give me a little variation of fruit, and I will eat oatmeal for 40 years. It, it, do, it doesn't take that much variation in my life. I, I'm, I'm really good with routine and consistency. <laughs> um, but asking the same question to every situation in the room is not going to work. As you just can't be that simplistic. You've got to think through and be creative and use common sense in varying it up. Uh, Christ is an example uh, for us in terms of understanding and sympathizing. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. You see that on the top of that third page, the text. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Well, what do we see here? Verse 15, Jesus is our great high priest. The double negative. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize positively. We do have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. Well, what is sympathizing? Christ sympathizing. Well, the word sympathy used here literally means to be touched by what has touched someone else, or to be moved by what has moved someone else. This is more than pity, where we feel sorry for a person in a tough situation. 
This is understanding what it's like to be in that circumstance. So Christ is able to sympathize with our human experience because he was tempted in every respect. I mean, listen to those words, in every respect. As we are, and yet a sinless Savior without sin. Extraordinary. (laughs) Extraordinary that the sinless Savior would come down and experience exactly that. He experienced our human temptations just like we do. That means he struggled with hunger and anger and greed as temptations that he actually faced. He was tempted in the same way as us, and he was able to face the temptation without sinning. He was tempted because he was human. He was like us. But because he gets what we're going through, he can sympathize. So, be like Jesus. Be like your Savior. Let that high priest model for you what it looks like to to sympathize with your people. The operative question for you is, do you struggle with sympathizing? You know, you, you know, someone's got a really difficult situation and you're sitting there and you feel the distance between their life and yours. And you're just having a really hard time relating. Do you struggle with sympathizing? Well, I don't want to give you 40 techniques or 50 tips. The best thing I can say to you is like, be like your Savior. If He did it, well, then you can too. Because <laughs> He modeled it for you so that we can learn what it looks like and be like Him too. What do you do if you've never gone through something that someone struggled with? You know, I've lived a very fortunate life. I grew up in a very stable home, had two loving parents. They're not Christians, but they did everything parents should do in creating a stable and loving and supportive home. Uh, I didn't go through with some some folks who have led to Christ and been involved in their lives or helped them, you know, have gone through really difficult and heavily dysfunctional upbringings. What do you do if, if the, the problem that's being expressed, you just have no idea? <laughs> I said, my world has not interacted with it. Well, you, 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 it, it's hard at first. So, for example, like, I've never, by the grace of God, I've never struggled with a drug addiction. I've never even tr- touched drugs in my entire life. That's a grace of God to me. And yet when I've worked with people who have struggled with severe drug addictions, you know, there's a gap emotionally in my experience with what they are going through. That's what I, example what I mean in terms of like, okay, there's a lot more work in terms of learning how to sympathize with that situation. Now, have I ever been addicted to things? Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things in my life which have been things I've had to work at because my idolatry like, gravitates me and my desires get overwhelm me for things. But, you know, is my craving for vanilla, vanilla bean ice cream <laughs> and my desire for it every night, <laughs> is that the same thing as drug addiction? No way. <laughs> no. I mean, and if I were to even hint at that, that would be demeaning to someone who's gone through something that severe. But is, is the nature of the, 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 over, the desires that overrun my heart 
and the kind of addictive qualities of things that I get stuck on, is that a window into me beginning to learn how to sympathize? Yes. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I have common temptations, though not to the same degree. And so I need to use that to help me learn how to build a bridge into their experience. And so I'm never going to say to a drug addict, oh, I get what you're going through. I struggle with vanilla bean ice cream every night. (laughs) That's just not going to be a good conversation for us to have, and it's going to be demeaning to them. But are there a list of things I can give you where I thought, oh, no, I mean, some of these things tried to take me down. (laughs) And so therefore, I need to learn, even though they're not to the same extent of severity, I need to learn how I had to work through that and begin to see how that's a bridge for me to begin to think through what that person's going through. The problem of assumptions. Uh, because of shared experiences, same Bible, same church, same language, same experiences, or uh, because uh, we know someone well, or because of shared history, we make a lot of invalid assumptions and minister to people who often only exist in our minds. <laughs> when we assume, we don't ask questions. We end up counseling the person in our mind rather than the person who's right in front of us. Assuming and not asking questions leads to misunderstanding and they blunt your ministry. So this is all, this whole assumption section, this is classic Paul Tripp. His principle on this is don't tolerate assumptions, ask. You get any, any inkling of assumptions, then you need to just simply start asking. Asking helps you to begin to figure out if there are assumptions at play. Now, if you are gifted relationally, if just knowing people and understanding people is really intuitive for you, and there's some of you in the room that this will qualify for. Some of you would just think, oh, no, I mean, I struggle, and it's really hard, and it's a lot of work for me. Some of you, it's just really natural to just kind of get it with people. Well, you are in particular danger for making assumptions <laughs> because it's so natural for you. You, 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 have, you have a danger of jumping in and presuming certain things far too quickly. And sometimes you're right because of the natural acuity you have for getting people, but that sometimes that's going to lead you into trouble <laughs> because you rush in with certain kinds of assumptions that are not valid because you're starting to counsel the person who you've thought through in your mind, but hasn't actually explained themselves in front of you. So you've got to be careful of that. So you want to make sure conclusion, your conclusions are valid. In order to do that, I listed a few things there for you. The, the one, two, three, four, five things I just want to explain that help you to examine assumptions. First thing is define. You just always want to get people to define their terms. And so people will often say things as they're talking over things with me. They'll say things like, so I was going over there and we did this and that. If they add four more sentences to that paragraph, what do I do do with the words this and that? I fill in what I think they meant. They're just vague words. And so I I will, this is the one time I'll interrupt people. Before they add in several more paragraphs of information, I'll say, oh, wait, tell me what that was? Or tell me what you meant by this? And so I want him to explain it so that before he adds in more data to the conversation, they understand it so I'm not making assumptions and building that information on my assumption. 
so I, I, I need to do that. Or take the example, couple comes in and the husband says, we had a nuclear fight. Not just conflict, it was a nuclear fight. Now, some of you are smiling because you, you know what that often means. <laughs> you know, it's a blowout. <laughs> they were screaming, they were even throwing things, slamming doors at each other. Well, okay, I mean, that, that's probably true, especially true when I have two feelers, passionate, you know, going at each other in conflict. But, you know, I pastor a congregation of like a lot of quiet introverts. And sometimes their conflict is like two beady eyes across the room, stern faces. (laughs) And for them, that's a nuclear fight. (laughs) So so I have to ask, what do you mean by nuclear? (laughs) Because if I presume the former, the passionate, you know, throwing things at each other and screaming, it just may not be the same as what actually they think nuclear really is. So you got to get people to define their terms. you got to be careful of filling in what you think it means. Then uh, concrete examples. The, you ask people to clarify what they mean by giving real-life examples. So people will do this all the time. They'll talk to you in generalities. You know, he never comes home on time. She always nags at me. Well, that just does, I mean, first of all, you can't use absolute language. That doesn't help. So don't use words like always or ever. Um, that doesn't usually characterize every situation. But those generalities, okay, they help me to understand. But man, you know, you need to give me a lot more specifics. Because there's not much I can do with the generalities. So the next thing I'll say is, okay, tell me about the last fight you had. Give me, give me an example. And I, I want the details. You know, I, I want the Howard Cosell blow by blow. I want to be in the ring with you. I want, to, I, want to, I want to be in the middle of that fight. Why is that? Because once they give me the specifics, it goes from black and white to living color. <laughs> I can now feel the dynamics of the conflict. I can feel how they treat one another. I can begin to get a sense of what's going on. So I want as much graphic detail as they'll give me so I can picture what's going on and get a feel for what the conflict is. And, you know, after a few times of getting specific examples, because couples who handle conflict poorly, they come in with a lot of fires that you have to put out regularly. And so you get, you get example after example after example. Well, after a few examples, I have a good sense of the patterns that are going on. And I, I, I get a good sense of the dynamics that are there. But you want concrete examples. Don't, don't settle for the generalities. Get, get them to give you a lot more detail of it. And, as, and, 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 you know, sometimes the spouse will say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm bad at remembering these kind of details. The other spouse goes, well, I remember. <laughs> I'll tell you everything that happened. Okay, well, I need it. Proverbs 18, 17, I need a balanced view of what happened, which is why I want them both on the couch to talk through things. But get as much detail as you can in, in doing that. Then you see the third thing there, um, get them to explain. So what do you mean by explain? Ask people to explain why they responded the way they did in the example that they've given you. Just get, help, them to, help them to help you understand their heart response. And then summarize. We, we want to repeat back what we think they're saying. Uh, we want to uh, tell, uh, tell them what we heard, which helps them to feel like they're understood. It's a great, great skill to exercise when you're communicating, no matter what the conversation is. So, you know, they say A, B, and C, 
And I respond at some point, okay, I just want to make sure I'm, I'm with you. So you're telling me A and C and E. And they go, no, 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 no. A and C is right, but you missed B. Okay, well, tell it to me again so I can get it. Uh, and we're going to keep working at it until I understand. And it goes two ways. I feel more confident that I understood what's going on, and they feel more confident that I'm getting it if I get the summary. So it helps both of us in our communicating and then testing the hypothesis. So, you know, you might be looking at the dynamics of a problem and think you understand, yet you may not know everything there is to know and might be even mislabeling what's going on. So in your humility, you want to offer your hypothesis. This goes back to my science history and background before I went into ministry. You know, you, you, what, is, what is a hypothesis? It's a theory. I, I'm not sure and confident yet. And so we test hypotheses to understand whether it's more certain. And so I will, you know, as I'm talking with a couple or a single person and, and say, okay, this is what I think is going on. And I'll use, I'll use, uh, I'll use figurative language. There's not a table literally in front of us, but I'll say something like, I'm going I'm to give you something, put it on the table for us to examine together. And so I think A, B, and C are important for your marriage and for you to understand. I would like feedback from the two of you to understand what you think about that. And they could say A and C are spot on, but you're missing something with B. All right, well, that's the feedback I needed. <laughs> if that's not accurate, I want to I hear from you what you have to say about it. I want you to adjust or correct or correct my misunderstand, uh, change my misunderstanding about the situation. And that kind of testing the hypothesis helps you to become, to come to conclusions that I think are more valid because it's been in the realm of interacting with each other and working at it together that we come to this understanding. Okay, asking good questions. So the, the first Five principles I have here are, uh, are all Paul Trippian, <laughs> and then next six after it are all uh, Reguian. I don't know how to say that, but that's the best I could. <laughs> First five are right out of Instruments and Redeemer's Hands, and then the next six are mine, from, uh, mine and Jeremy's from the Pastor and Counseling, just to help you think about how to ask questions. Uh, so, number one, early on in conversation, you usually ask open-ended questions to let them have plenty of room to talk about what they need to talk about. You know, how are you doing with the problem? Or just simp- a simple question at the beginning. How can I help you today? Tell me what you're here for. That, that socially indicates it is now your turn to talk at me and tell me your problems. Uh, we, we're now shifting for you to begin to explain to me what's going on. And, and closed-ended questions are not helpful. So we start, you see number two, on the front end with the open-ended questions, questions that cannot be answered with a simple yes or no. If I ask you, tell me if your marriage is good or bad, oh, it's good. Well, that didn't give me much information. <laughs> if I ask you, tell me about the quality of your marriage and the hard things you've been through over the last 10 years, and what, what it's like for you in terms of your worship of God right now, how it's helping or hindering that, okay, well, that, that's probably going to give me a lot more <laughs> as you fill in all those details. Uh, then three, use a combination of survey and overview questions and then focused questions. 
you know, survey questions. You look at different areas of a person's life to piece together different themes or things that are similar in each area. So does this person struggle with pride or in, in parenting and then also pride at work? And then focus questions, focus on one specific area where we want to go deeper. So the illustration that really, that's useful in thinking about this is a hotel. So a number of us are staying for the conference and hotels. So last night, you know, got to my room, walked down the hallway. I'm room 310, came around the elevator and looked down the hallway, and there were all those rooms on the right and the left. Now imagine that that's a person's life. One room is parenting, another room is work, another room is intimacy, another room is finances. Well, I'm going to go up and down the hallway asking questions about each one of those areas of their life. And that's the survey questions. I'm just getting a sense of the different areas of their life. And what am I looking for? I'm looking for if pride is in their work, I can bet you pride's probably going to show up in their parenting. There's probably similar themes in other areas. But uh, let's say a particular issue shows up in their parenting. Okay, well, I'm going to go into the first room. And what I do when I went into my room 310 last night, you know, it, what do we see in all the rooms? The same kinds of carpeting, same probably picture on the wall, same kind of furniture that's there. Well, I'm going to walk over to the carpet, stare at this piece of carpet, and ask a lot of details about that piece. That's the focus questions. I zoom in on one particular area and ask a lot more detail about that particular area because there's something I need to know about that particular area to help us. Number four, you see there, if you want to turn over the page, handout. Always remember that certain kinds of questions reveal certain kinds of information. So the reporter questions, what uncovers basic information? Why purposes, desires, goals, and motivations? How often and where reveals themes and patterns? And when reveals order of events? If I were trapped on a deserted island and I only get one question, you should know me well enough by now, after you heard me for these two days, which question do I want? Why? And why, why? Yeah, that, that's the hard question. <laughs> that, that is the hard question. That is my golden question in working with people. Now, now I, I, my, my laziness, my, my let's eat oatmeal every morning kind of just basic common sense routine can be lazy. Just ask the why question with the word why all the time. And that's where the creativity in asking the question in lots of different ways helps to unveil unveil and reveal things than if I was like being fairly basic in the way I was trying to handle it. Number five, ask a progressive line of questions which build on each other. Uh, there should be an order and logic to the flow of questions. Uh, each question should broaden and deepen our understanding of whatever's being considered. You accomplish this by asking yourself, what do I not know about what I have just heard? So a bar, part of our training, what we do is after people have done my year-long class in, for our, our, our members, what I'll often do is we'll break out into groups, and over three weeks I'll pick three members, and they'll do a role play. So one person will be a role play, and one person will be in the counselor-discipler chair. And I will be in the room and watch the entire conversation, and I'll write down every question they ask through the entire hour. And what am I looking for? I'm looking for a flow in logic looking if they ask questions that build on one another, looking to see if they head in a particular direction. Uh, because uh, what we do often is we just ask kind of popcorn questions. 
you know, kind of popcorn prayer, popcorn questions. We just kind of ask a random array of questions, all kinds of questions, and yet they're not really directly connected to one another. There is no lo- logic or pro- progression in how we're asking things. Um, and so I, I go back with them, and then we think through what they were trying to do and help them think through how to build in a particular direction. All right, there, number six. Um, I try to start by asking questions that evoke self-understanding and discovery of what is going on. You draw them out by asking questions. So the purpose is a man's heart at deep waters. A man of understanding draws them out, Proverbs 25. By asking questions, you're gently leading them down certain paths so that he or she discovered what is good to do. He or she is more likely than to embrace and own the ideas and solutions and possibilities? Why is that? If I just told them what to do, they might be humble enough to hear. But if they came to own it on their own, they came to realize what it is they should do, they're going to walk away with a different kind of ownership of it than if I just told them what to do. So I like the more Socratic style first, where I'm just asking them enough questions, even if I know where I think I want them to go, to try and help them to realize what it is they need to own. So, you know, Andrew was an elder in our congregation, and there was a young guy making a big decision, and he, he was meeting up with different people in the church to help, them, help him sort through the big decision. And he met up with Andrew also over lunch. And I asked him afterwards, like, tell me about your decision, but also tell me about your conversations. He said, Andrew was the most helpful. And so I went to Andrew and I said, what did you do? <laughs> I'm going to come and give me the secret sauce. What'd you do, Andrew? <laughs> Um, and he said, I just spent the whole hour asking him questions. I didn't tell him what to do. I just kept on asking questions to help him understand what he needs to look at. He kept on probing deeper and deeper to help him begin to realize and own what it is he really needed to own. That's, that's when I came to realize, oh, that's a great way at it. <laughs> that's a great way at helping to lead another person to, to the living waters that they need in making that kind of decision. So that means, number seven, my general strategy. I start with self-discovery. <laughs> what is God doing in your life? Example of a question. And if that doesn't work, I'm going to come halfway at them with leading questions. So where is, do you see God's mercy in this situation? What's the difference between the first question and the, and the second question? First question, self-discovery. What is God doing in your life? More open-ended. I'm just letting them speak about what they see in, in, in God doing in their life. Second question, more leading question, where do you see God's mercy in the situation? Well, I inserted mercy into that question because I see mercy going on. I certainly see it in your life. And so I want to see if you can see it too. So it's a bit of a leading question, but it's deliberately leading them there. And if, if the leading question doesn't work, then and only then will I tell them what they need to know. But notice where I started. What's the normal instinct of a pastor and truth teller? Yeah, start with telling them what they need to know. That's our normal instinct. Why is it? Because we're paid to preach the truth. We're paid to be truth tellers. But I'm saying to you, when you switch into helping someone with their sin and suffering, you've got to make a gear shift. 
You're just going to help them walk out owning it more if you start with the self-discovery or the leading questions. Are there times where you need to tell them what they need to know? Yes. So that would be God's mercy is working in your life in this way. And let me list it for you. So I, I tell them, feed them what they need to know when they distort the truth or reality and I need to correct them. Or they're so clueless they don't know what to do. Or they're so deep in sin and blind to their sin they need to be exhorted and redirected. Or they lack insight or self-awareness into their own heart. And you, you get that with some people where they say, I just don't know. Some people have never done deep heart work. Nobody's ever forced them to. I mean, I had a session last week, and the wife confessed, and she said, I'm just a very superficial person, so this is really hard work for me. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is really intense for me, because I don't, I don't go into those kinds of deep waters. I'm like, well, I appreciated her honesty with that in, in saying that. Well, if, if someone has not lived in that kind of life, and being versus the opposite side is, you know, people who are deeply self-reflective, I mean, they're going to love those why questions. But if someone lacks insight and self-awareness, you, you get a lot of the I don't know responses. It could be laziness, or they just don't care, but it could be just a lack of self-awareness of their own heart. They've just never gone there, and they need help going there. They don't understand their own desires or heart motivations, which means they need patient, you need to be patient with them and help them to discover it. Number eight, you ask questions. When you ask questions, you're trying for a balance of giving them freedom to roam, but also guiding the conversation. And by asking a question, you're directing the conversation down certain paths. But when you ask a question, you're also cutting off other possible pathways. In that, you're creating a fence in the conversation. You see there a quote from um, Jeremy and Mai's book, The Pastor and Counseling. Listening well requires the delicate balance of allowing freedom to roam and keeping the person in the right field. We're all inclined differently. Some of us are inclined to be such passive listeners that we never interject with a helpful question to direct things. We may let the struggling person take the lead, and frankly, they don't know where, they go, where to go. Others may be inclined to keep the conversation as efficient as possible by directing it with a strict agenda of directing questions. The person feels guided by the nose and probably less likely to give needed information. Listening in such a way that helpfully directs the conversation is a tough skill to master. Think in terms of fencing the conversation but not leashing the person. You want them to feel freedom to go where they want to in the proper boundaries, but not forced along a specific path. Patiently listen and don't talk over the person, but at the same time, don't be passive. More than likely, you've got only an hour or so. If you let them talk about whatever they want at whatever pace they want, they will probably mention some useful things, but many less useful things. The key is to ask follow-up questions on pieces of information that will be useful to you. This is showing them the fence without leashing them too tightly. An excellent follow-up question will both acknowledge the person's concern and direct the conversation toward the most helpful information in getting to the bottom of the problem. 
Number nine, ask different kinds of questions that can be useful at different points in the conversation. Early on in the conversation, uh, you're trying to ask a lot, of, a lot of data collecting questions to just get to know the person's context and their life. Then we've talked about the heart-oriented questions that are the depth questions that go after the why and get after the, the goals and motivation and desires. Then you ask questions. Uh, after you get a good understanding of what's going on, you can ask leading questions that are directed at helping someone gain insight. So how has God been merciful to you? You can also ask reflexive questions that help counselees to think about their heart responses, their attitudes, their feelings, and their behavior. So example of a conversation that I put there for you. Counselee says, my father hates me and my siblings don't want anything to do with me. I say, so things have been hard. Counselee says, things have been hard for a while and it feels like pain piles up onto on onto pain and hurt, and it is never dealt with. So I respond, sounds a lot to me like you're growing bitter, but we've talked about this a lot. You are often not willing to look at your sin in these relationships. Counsel is silent. I wait silently for a moment. Are you angry at your family, or are you angry at God, or both? I'm angry at God, the counselee says. I respond, are you blaming God for your troubles? Counselee, he is sovereign, isn't he? He brought this, not me. I respond, it sounds to me that you are angry and bitter at God. Is that right? So after you feel like uh, the pastor or counselor has a sense of how they need to change, you can start asking questions that then press for change. You ask questions that put them in a position for owning the kind of change that they need to have in their relationships. So I, I can ask, how can you be supportive of your wife? Or how are you going to protect against looking at pornography this week? Or how are you going to apologize to your boss? Or how do you need to forgive your father? You see, the nature of those questions helps them to think about how they are supposed to. Not just respond, but do something about it. And number 10. Most people ask questions naturally and with common sense, but their strategy is haphazard. <laughs> they, they, they ask this question and that question, and so you need to adopt a question-asking strategy. Now, you know, I love uh, Paul Tripp and Tim Lane's How People Change. Um, if you've ever been around CCF, you know, drink their Kool-Aid... <laughs> Uh, the How People Change Two Trees model of sanctification is one model of sanctification in thinking about it. You know, years ago when I was doing that, um, that training that I talked about with when we take three members and they do the role play, there was one of the elder wives in our congregation who had done the full year training and was doing the role play. And I was watching her in her session, and it was really obvious to me that she had a clear logic and flow as she was working through her questions. And I couldn't figure out what she was doing. And then afterwards, I asked her, like, what, what, what on earth were you doing? Because you, you had a clear, systematic way. You had a logic and flow. There was a really good progression. Well, she had so internalized the, the model that they had, she was working her way through the model. <laughs> the, the two trees diagram, she was literally had, had that picture in mind, and she was working her way through the diagram 
in order to ask it. Well, that's, you know, that's training wheels as you're learning how to do that. You can't have a firm structure for every problem. But if you have concepts of what a theology of sanctification is, it helps orient you in having some kind of progression. So I say especially to you, if you think, man, I am, I, I am, I'm toast on this. <laughs> I, I just am going to have no idea what to do. Well, pick up. There, there are uh, quite a few good books on the theology of sanctification that are out on the market right now. And just own some of the material that's in there. That'll help you think through then how to have the conversation. It'll help give you some of that. Now, here's, here's a little insight in how my brain works. <laughs> you ready for this? I don't, I don't walk around with these 11 principles in mind in how I'm asking and interacting with people. I'm not thinking, oh, this situation requires principle number seven. Uh, that's not, not, not the way it works when I'm in the moment. No, rather, I, I have categories in mind, just categories of questions, categories of interaction, categories that, that are easily applicable to different kinds of situations. So context questions, just context, get to, get to know the person's overall life. Problem-oriented questions, questions oriented around the main thing that we have to deal with. God questions, I want to understand their personal relationship with the Lord and their own theology of God. You know, questions about their spiritual life, I want to know especially about repentance and faith, their identity in Christ. And then, of course, heart-oriented questions, the depth questions that, uh, that help me to understand better where they're at on things. And then you see there, uh, I won't read that to you because we're running out of time, just a, another quote about what it means to ask the more in-depth questions and what that looks like. And then you see relationship questions, what's the structure of the relationships in their life, and then historical and background questions. What, what goes on in their life that, that we need to know about? And, you know, I, I think this is one of those categories we're rather poor at because we can learn a lot about the context and yet, you know, as, as I'll tell a couple as I'm interacting with them, I'll say, you're two actors on a stage, and you're standing on the front of the stage, but on any stage, what, what's behind them? A backdrop. <laughs> and all of us have a backdrop in our life. So, you know, if a young lady who, who is now an adult and she's married, if her father abandoned their family when she was five and she was raised by a single mom, you got to believe that's going to affect her marriage. <laughs> now, that, that might not be the present, ever-present reality in the moment where her, her husband does something dumb, <laughs> but she walks around with a living fear that her husband will turn out to be her dad. <laughs> that he'll turn out to leave him one day and be a hypocrite. So you got to understand the backdrop. <laughs> Because the backdrop influences what happens in the moment. Uh, we all have different kinds of backdrops that affect us and, and understanding. So i got to ask the historical and background questions so I understand the narrative of a person's life. So that's the main things I wanted to cover uh, in terms of listening and asking questions.